0: Ezekiel chapter two, and <clears throat> when you found your place, go ahead and stand. And as I've said the last couple of weeks, if if you have trouble finding Ezekiel, just open your Bible to the very middle, and you'll probably hit the Psalms, and you just go a little to the right, and you'll go through Isaiah and well, Proverbs, and then Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah and Lamentations and. You'll hit Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 2, let's take this in by way of introduction, a, a wonderful chapter. Uh, it is, a, if you will, it was it is God's calling of Ezekiel to, uh, to the ministry, for lack of a better term, his calling as a prophet. Let's begin <clears throat> in verse 28, just for a little context, of chapter 1. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of the rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. This is, again, him describing this image of God on his throne. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet. And I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus. Says the Lord, and whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them. Whether they hear or refused to hear, they are a rebellious house. But you, O oh son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me. And behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. And it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Hmm, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once more, let's petition the Lord in prayer, just briefly. Father, thank you for your word. And as we stand here, uh, humbly bowed before it, we ask that you would enlighten our minds, that you would humble our hearts, that you would teach us about yourself and your character. As the old prayer says, Show me yourself, and show me myself, and show me my need for a Savior. And so may it be accomplished tonight as we examine this unusual, uh, ancient, old prophecy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Chapter 1, we called the vision referring to the first of a series of visions Ezekiel had when he saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, the angels and their wings and the throne and the expanse and the wheels with their eyes and the, the, the flashes of lightning and the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And so we considered how this description teaches us certain things about God, concerning his nature and his character. That is a a doctrine of the person of God. And the things that we considered were otherness, which, be, which is simply to say he is holy, not like us, holy and separate. His omniscience, that he sees everything. His omnipotence, which is to say he knows everything. And then finally we noted his initiation. He is the God who initiates. He appears to Ezekiel. He does not respond to Ezekiel. He appears to him. Well, chapter 2, we'll call that, since we're sticking with these uh, these statements, uh, the vision, chapter 2 is the call. And so uh, the first thing we'll notice about the call is kindness and encouragement. You might not see that right away, but consider, he was on his face, Ezekiel was, trembling, certainly, humbled, without a doubt, on his face before the Lord, and the Lord calls on him to stand to your feet, stand up, and I'll speak with you, you know, talking with one another is one of the most intimate and unique things about connecting as human beings. Um, I love my dog, she's a good dog. She comes to me with me to, to work sometimes. I, it's like, she's like a shop dog, but it's not a shop, it's a church office. And so if you work here, you have to love dogs, I guess. She loves Leanne and she loves Don and they love her. And, um, and she's my little buddy, man. I'll tell her, I'll say, go potty and she'll go out and then she'll just do a little turn, and then she'll come back. And it's like, no, 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 you're not fooling me, dog. Okay, I'm. I didn't wake up, you know, on the whatever. I didn't. Wasn't born yesterday. I'll go. Nope. Go potty. And then she'll go. Okay. Back out. Go, use the bath, and then come back. It's like she's she's trying to convince me. Like if I just run out in the yard for a second, is that is that good? Is that gonna? She's my little pal. I say things like, go on like that just go on and she's like okay and she knows what I mean she goes runs upstairs gets in the bed with the boys and she's happy as she can be dogs dogs are truly you know special it's a special relationship but if one day my dog started talking to me that would change things dramatically You see what I'm saying the Lord has given to us language and by language, by the mode of communication, by hearing and understanding words, this, this sentience, this high level of connection and reason and communication, there's a, a special intimacy that is fostered. That's why husbands and wives who don't speak feel lonely even though they're in the same room, in the same house. And so I notice here, This phrase, stand on your feet and I will speak with you to be an incredible kindness and encouragement. Carl Beckwith says, The Lord loves to encourage man to his duty. There Ezekiel lay as a man wounded without strength. Christ leaves him not in his condition, but speaks kindly to him. And of course it shouldn't be overlooked that that the Lord spoke the earth into existence, and if you will, by his mouth he breathed life into Adam's lungs. And so when we when we pray to the Lord and He speaks to us in His Word, it's always an incredible kindness and a special intimacy. Now, related to is to Ezekiel's call, we'll note a couple of things. Number one, we'll note that the Lord describes them as a rebellious house, a rebellious house, which, you know, a household in biblical terminology is always referring to a unit, right? So this person and his whole household got saved, we see in the book of Acts. This lady, Lydia, and her whole household got baptized. It's the unit. It's all of them together. Whatever was happening to them was happening to them collectively. And so this rebellious house of Israel is a summary statement by God. You're going to go and you're going to minister. You're going to speak my words to a rebellious unit. All together. And this is a tough job description. I mean, those words we just read. um, He talks about, God talks about their words being like briars or like laying on scorpions their words are like thorns. Don't be dismayed at their looks. This is a tough, that's a tough jam, you know? It's very similar. It reminds me of Paul's uh, initiation into the ministry as an apostle, right? What does he tell, what's the cat's name who uh, who laid his eyes his hands on Paul when he was blind? Is it Ananias? That sounds right, yeah. He said, Ananias i need to show paul how much he will suffer for my name and this was if you will cooked into paul's calling that's brutal sort of like jeremiah now if ezekiel is called to preach and he tells god tells him they're not going to listen they're going to look at you like this right (laughs) don't be dismayed at their looks they're going to look at you funny I'm not going to believe you. Why would God do this? What's the point? Why would God send him to a people who will not respond? Why would God call him to preach at all? Now, there's two simple answers to that question that I found myself pondering. Number one, it's that God is just. God is just. Romans chapter 1 the condemned will only have themselves to blame. Right? From the four corners of the earth, if you will, the heavens declare the glory of God. God has made himself known through creation alone. And so when this rebellious house meets their end, it will not be because God did not warn them. He's just. But also we know secondly that they will not repent a rebellious house, it doesn't always mean that no one will repent. We saw that in Romans, if you guys remember this. Early in Romans, Paul was talking about his brothers, Israel, and about how they have rejected, they are hard-hearted, they are blind. But what do we know about the early church? Well, for the first 15 to 20 years of the church's existence, it was made up of only Jews who were converted to Christianity so obviously the nation of israel they as paul was saying it wasn't referring to every single absolute individual but rather the majority the overwhelming majority well so too it is here they are a rebellious house it as a unit as a whole they are hard and stubborn they will not listen but recognize that there always was, always has been, and is still now the remnant, the remnant. There's always a portion, there's always something, the remnant of Abraham's physical descendants who believe, and in some case, in some manner or speaking, some of them clearly listened, because what we'll find is in the the chapters ahead, is that when Ezekiel begins to have these visions again, it says when he was, it'll say when he is sitting with the elders of Israel, he had a vision and it was again, that image of the throne of God. And then he was given a word to speak. So someone, some of the elders were sitting with Ezekiel. They hadn't rejected him. They hadn't rejected his message. Some, are mentioned later in Ezra and Nehemiah, good men who loved the law of the Lord who returned many years later to rebuild. And so God is just, but also God is very personal. There might be a crowd of a thousand and the whole crowd walk out, but if there's the one there that will respond, God will send his messenger. He's just, but he's compassionate. In verse 8, I find this to be an interesting phrase, and I know you do as well. Open your mouth and eat this scroll. And what was the scroll? The scroll is the message, right? It's the message. And what was the message initially? What was it described as? Three words, lamentation, mourning, and woe. This is Ezekiel's early message. You have broken God's covenant and the consequences that God promised in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and other places, those consequences are upon you. And so this is your message. And, and we read then that he, he sat, at the end of chapter three, it says after all of this, he sat among them, overwhelmed. Look at, look at uh, 315. I sat there overwhelmed among them for seven days. I appreciate this, right? Because he's a man. He's a man like me, he's a human like you. And had been had this been your calling, had this been your revelation, um, your message will be to a stubborn people and it will not be a positive one. You will not have grand results. <laughs> you will not amass a book deal and a following You're going to preach to people who are going to largely reject your message and the message itself will not be fun to execute. But don't be like them and not say what I've called you to say. Far be it. In fact, in chapter three, it comes with some pretty strong warnings about Ezekiel not saying what God called him to say. And so I appreciate the humanity here in verse 15 of chapter three. He sat there, just sat, he just sat for seven days, overwhelmed. Yeah, it's good. We would be too. That is if we were still living after seeing the vision of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Right? Well, let's consider this just for a moment. Eat the scroll. Let's look at this picture I've found. I I, I like this one. Uh, we've got in the background uh, the the symbolism of that, f- that, that flaming throne, pictured in the, the angel's wings there. And then it says, then he saw a, a hand extended to him and a scroll. And I don't know how well you can see it, yeah. So inside the hand, there's like a, a bubble almost and inside the bubble, there's a scroll, like with two pieces, like it's been opened from both sides. Do you see it? It's a beautiful picture. If you could see it, like, with detail, you would really appreciate it. Um, And then there's Ezekiel standing, the figure down at the bottom. The scale of it is marvelous, yeah. Eat the scroll. 19th century Anglican pastor Andrew Fawcett says, God's messenger must first inwardly appropriate God's truth himself before he speaks it. others and this is the picture and this is the point the messenger must take the word into himself first this goes for the pastor but this also goes for the church member you are called to make disciples but you must eat the word and appropriate that's take on to yourself right take on to yourself the wisdom and the humility and the grace the kindness, the fervor, the steadfastness, the truth of God's word before you can effectively speak it to others. You, church, must eat the scroll. However, we read that true to form, the scroll is sweet as honey. Look at me. Look with me at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3. He said to me, Son of man, eat what you find here. What did he find? The scroll with words on the front and the back. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll. Be nourished by it. You see that? Don't just eat it, feed your belly. Let it sustain you, in fact. Fill your belly with this scroll that I give you, and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was, as in my mouth, as sweet as honey. Again, true to form, the scroll is sweet, for so are the words of God. In this case, we know for a fact they are words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Friends, we recognize that no matter the tone, no matter the content, no matter the purpose The words of the Lord are sweet to those who call on his name. Sometimes those words are words of conviction and correction, like these, lamentation and mourning and woe. Sometimes when we crack open the scriptures, they cut us to the core. But is the cutting to hurt us or is the cutting to bring us close to him? Yeah, they're sweet and other times they're to encourage us in our sadness or in our grief. They're to comfort us in our feeling of loneliness or despair, no matter the content, no matter the tone, regardless of their purpose, the words of the Lord are sweet. The psalmist knew this, Psalm nineteen nine: the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Well, chapter 2 is all about the call, but chapter 3 moves from that calling into, beginning especially in verse 16, the duty. From the call to the duty. Let's pick it up there in verse 16. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. One of the rarest words used in the whole text of Scripture. The Hebrew word translated there for us, watchman. I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel whenever you hear a word from my mouth you shall give them a warning from me if i say verse 18 to the wicked you shall surely die and you give him no warning nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life that word, the wicked person will die for his iniquity but his blood i will require at your hand and the lord goes on in the following verses to say similar things but in opposite order If I tell you to warn them and you don't, or if I tell you not to speak and you speak, or if they hear you and respond, if they hear you and don't respond, and all the different potential uh, vacillations of communication. The important thing for us to recognize here is Ezekiel's duty. His duty is one of a watchman. Now a watchman, historically speaking, is a military post. He sits or stands on the wall of a city, and his duty is to warn the inhabitants, most notably the king of the city, to warn him of incoming danger, but it was also to alert the king of unrest from inside the walls, incoming danger from outside, but also trouble-brewing inside he's the watchman it's a metaphor some of the danger for israel is outside the judgment of the lord is coming but some of the danger is from within the sinfulness of man expressed in unrest you're a watchman you are to expose if you will both both the coming and pending judgment of the Lord from without and also expose the reason and that is the sinfulness from within I fear not great temptation from the devil I do not believe that the devil has to waste his time with me. There's enough sinfulness in me to take care of the job all on its own. He doesn't have to come after me. I, I'm i plenty broken and messed up and sinful enough to do his job for him. There's enough selfishness and pride and greed and laziness. and There's enough idolatry of self still riddled all over my heart satan doesn't have to attack me from without <laughs> uh, he, he's working on somebody else i'm taking care of it just fine but this is what the watchman does the watchman alerts and he says hey is that pride right hey is that is that selfless or is that selfish Right? Did you just sit there and let your wife take care of that again? How long have you been sitting on the couch reading? How many times has she gotten up since you sat down? The watchman, right? The spirit convicting us of sin. Yes, danger from outside, flee temptation, right? But the warning from within. As a watchman, we should ask, what does this suggest about Ezekiel's ministry? Well, first of all, he will warn people. That will be his message. We find it in, uh, in the next chapter, in chapter 4, verse 16. He says, Moreover, son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. So this is his message. Thus said the Lord, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They will not eat bread, or they shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety. You get the sense there. By weight and with anxiety. Is this all we get? Savor it. Because the army is encamped all around the city walls. We can't get any more. Savor it. And they shall drink water by measure. You can't drink your fill. There's not enough to go around. You can drink this much. They'll drink it by measure and in dismay. Chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. I will do this that they may lack bread and water and look on another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. Ezekiel will warn people as a watchman. Coming in from the outside, danger, judgment, punishment. But the, the calling also, his duty I should say, also speaks to something of a loneliness. And he'll spend much of his time alone, or nearly so, in his observation of the discipline of the lord the overwhelming majority of the exiles will not respond to the call of repentance they will not listen to the reason why they are in captivity and why the judgment of the lord is coming upon israel it's a lonely calling sometimes for us all in fact to be among the few perhaps standing up against a cultural wave of seeming immorality, the rejection of the the creator God and his moral implications on life. A, A lonely ministry perhaps we have or will have. But I do love this, verse eight of chapter three, he says, behold, I've made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. They're hard headed who you're going to speak to, but don't worry, I've made you just as hard. <laughs> now I love this because it reminds me of um, Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms, right? Recant, recant, or be executed, excommunicated, etc. And what does he say? Here I stand, I can do no other, right? It's Polycarp, the disciple of John the Apostle, standing up and, and being again, same thing, compelled to recant the message of Jesus. And he says, 86 years my master has never failed me or left me or let me down. How could I do this thing? And they said to Polycarp, "Well." fine we'll beat you with sticks and he goes "Eh, what are sticks to me we'll burn you with fire and polycarp there says in front of this whole like tribunal and the most powerful man in the world you threaten me with fire but you know nothing of the fire that is reserved for the evil one bring on the flames that's history that's not my version that's what he said come on I've made your face as hard as theirs It's John MacArthur out in California refusing to dismiss his church and oh no no, no just watch online saying no we got to have church man this is not right and being sued by the government and fighting back in court saying no we have as of right now we have a constitutional right to have church and you can't say otherwise change the law strip us of our guns okay we'll see what happens but as of right now I'm going to stand here. And he stood, and they won. I've made your faces hard, right? And so we hope and pray that the Lord would make our faces hard as well, make our foreheads hard, stubborn in our insistence upon the infallible word of God. The authority of the scriptures, the, the creator of God who does have moral implications for how his creation lives their lives. Standing hard, unwilling to move or budge off of Romans 6:23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Stand. Refuse to budge. Refuse to compromise. No matter the cost, no matter the threat, no matter the looks on their faces or the stinging aspect of their words, Lord, make us hard, right, in the best of sense. Make our faces and our foreheads hard. Make us determined. Now, that's one aspect of the way that God ensures that Ezekiel will be able to fulfill his duty. He makes him stubborn, stubborn in the face of stubbornness. The other way that God ensures Ezekiel can be a faithful watchman is found there in verse 24 of chapter 3. The Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. We saw it again back in chapter 2. The Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. It's a metaphor, right? Your feet carry you to labor. Isaiah 52 Seven, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Psalm 119, the word is a lamp for my feet. Jesus said, follow me. The New Testament constantly talks about walking in a manner, like in Ephesians, walking in a manner worthy. The feet matter. There's something about being set on his feet. The feet carry the word. The feet carry us to action it's all pictorial speaks of the conduct the activity the labor the devotion in simple form you might say the feet symbolize the will of the individual expressed in action the will expressed in action every part of the body has a a biblical symbolic meaning um, um, there's, there's the feet like we just discussed, but David talked about giving me clean hands. Why? Because he was a man of war. The, the government would be on the shoulders of Jesus. It's the, the, the bearing of a burden, right? Every, every aspect of our anatomy has a, a spiritual metaphorical meaning. And the feet are that. So he set on his feet in order that his will might be expressed in action. He is enabled by the Spirit to obey. He's enabled by the Spirit to obey. How does God ensure that Ezekiel can uphold this duty? By indwelling him and enabling his obedience. Do you see it? Set him on his feet, but not just from without, but from within. Friends, the Spirit's work is the same in us today. You and I are also called to be watchmen, not the same as Ezekiel. When Ezekiel spoke, it's thus saith the Lord, and out comes infallible words. We carry an infallible gospel, but our words are often flawed. We stumble, we fumble, we mumble. But we've been given a similar call. It's to speak the words of God, to speak the words of warning from without and sinful unrest from within. And let us deliver then the message with fervor and passion, with love and precision, knowing that the spirit also indwells us and enables our obedience. That's what Paul meant when he said in Galatians 5, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And you say, well, how do you walk by the spirit? The spirit indwells you and enables your obedience. If you can do anything good, that is truly, purely good, free of selfish motives, free of the tinge of mixed ambitions. Anything that is done that is good is done because the spirit is enabling your obedience. That's you walking in the spirit. And as such, you are incapable in that moment of gratifying the desires of the flesh for those two things are polar opposites from one another. Romans 6. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you, you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. A slave is compelled in the in the strongest possible way a slave is enabled to obey. Why? They don't have a choice. Right? Slaves of righteousness. That's what Jesus promised. I will not leave you orphans. I'll send the Helper. He'll be with you, but also in you. It's one of the most remarkable, almost ununderstandable, if that's a word. Let me get a word. Sounds good. Mysterious, bonkers things that the Bible promises. That the Spirit of God, that which occupies His temple, will in some small measure dwell within us. And yet those of us who have walked with the Lord and know the Lord, we recognize the validity of the statement that says his spirit assures us by communing with our spirit. And there is that deep underlying communion with the Lord that is indescribable, right? And you begin to put words to it and it just sounds, that's not good enough, right? like that. When he does all of this, he makes our heads hard. He enables us to obey through indwelling in order that we, like Ezekiel, might fulfill our duty. He didn't do it to make us feel good. He does this to use us. Ezekiel lived a pretty miserable life. Lived his whole adult life from 25 until he died. He died in exile. His wife We'll see later dies and he's not allowed to mourn her by the decree of god and he is commissioned to preach to a people who will not listen that's a bummer of a life did god call on ezekiel set his spirit in ezekiel to enable his obedience in order to make ezekiel feel happy and cherished and loved and no But he was used He was used He was a tool in the hand of the living God Unto his eternal purposes He wasn't happy and healthy And strong and comfortable But you pick the epitaph over your your grave, friends Here lies so and so Healthy, happy, comfortable or here lies so and so, used for the eternal good and purpose of the living God. Right? I know, I know I'll pick the one over the other. That one's not even hard. There's much harder things. That one's not hard. Well, from the duty, we get into the verdict the verdict he's called his his calling is described as a watchman chapters 4 and 5 get into the verdict like a courtroom first the verdict is delivered right in the case of so-and-so against so-and-so or the state against so-and-so we the jury i the judge find the defendant find the accused guilty right? Then comes what? The sentencing, correct? Same thing here, okay? In just big picture stuff, chapters 4 and 5 are the verdict. I, God the judge, find you, Israel, guilty. Chapters 6 and 7 are the sentencing, okay? So as we discuss these for a few minutes, just try to keep those two things separated, and you'll be fine. The key point of chapters 4 and 5 is that God has set himself against Jerusalem. Look at verse 1. And you, son of man, chapter 4, verse 1. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it and cast up a mound against it, set camps against it, and plant battering rams against it all around. He's literally, it's like, this is like my, my son Luke's, dream job right make a lego set basically of jerusalem and a battle scene a siege scene these are little battering rams and this is the tent where the captain sleeps and right and he's like set the whole scene street theater take an iron griddle verse three and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and now look ezekiel is playing the the role of god place an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it. Again, symbolism, hand, feet, face. Ooh, excuse me, that's the intent, right? Set your face toward it and let it be in a state of siege. So I see what's going on and yet I intervene not and press the siege against it. Not only do I not intervene, I actually control command the siege this is a sign for the house of israel and this is fun then lie on your side and place the punishment of the house of israel upon it for the number of the days that you shall lie on it shall bear their punishment and he goes on to say later that that he'll leave his his arm bare the arm like the hand like the face like the feet is symbolic the arm is a picture of the strength right as is obviously demonstrated here with this one So lay, lay your arm bare Against the city Show the strength He's playing God In the theater God is moving the siege Against Jerusalem My arm is exposed The strength of God Is set against you My face is set toward you My intention And my attention Is set on you And yet not to rescue you But to discipline you To chastise you That's fascinating Word pictures I I can't encourage you in strong enough terms if you haven't already, read these chapters this week. The key verses are there in the opening of each chapter, those that we just read from chapter 4, and then jump over to chapter 5, look at verses 7 and 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are around you, listen to this carefully, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules, look, and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you. It's a very specific judgment, verdict. Therefore, says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. God says there in in verse 7, in the case of God versus my people Israel, I find you guilty. Not only guilty of being apathetic, which is to say to ignore, callously ignore my law. Not just that, that would be bad enough. But the nations around you look like saints compared to you. You don't even live up to their pagan standard, much less my standard. Isn't that fascinating? It makes you wonder, like, man, things must have been really gnarly. And when you read Second Chronicles and Second Kings and you read about the activity of the various kings and the people and the idol worship and the idolatry and the sexual promiscuity and the the, the murdering of prophets, I mean it's it's gnarly. It's really gnarly. Guilty. The verdict is in, and you're guilty. Ezekiel's acting out the events that would come to pass. Remember by way of timeline, okay? Ezekiel gets this message and he begins to deliver it some 7 years before the events of 2nd Chronicles 36:17 through 21, which is the final of the three sieges of Jerusalem. So seven years in advance, Ezekiel is prophesying, and he's showing the siege of Jerusalem that would come at the hand of the king of the Chaldeans is how it reads. It's King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. The verdict is in. That which awaits Jerusalem comes by the hand of the judge. Do not believe prophets who say they will have victory do not believe the false prophets in Jerusalem who are telling them that they will defeat their enemy. Their enemy is God. They have made themselves the enemy of God. There's more symbolism, but we won't get into it. I wanna get into the judgment, Because I think that'll be a decent start, uh, stopping place. I told Jason Stamper tonight, I said, we could do, we're doing 10 chapters tonight, and he laughed at me. It wasn't even like a response. It was just, ha <laughs> no. But um, he said, "My guess is, what'd you say? Nine, or six, something like that." I said, "I said we can't know. It's got to be either. It's got to be either like 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 seven chapters or eleven chapters because the the last four are a unit. So we'll take those together next week. But let's finish up this." chapter six and seven tonight the judgment All right first comes the verdict guilty next comes the sentence judgment that's the sentencing what's going to happen guilty is why the verdict describes what the judgment describes why so f- so four and five is this is what's going to happen this is what's coming the hand and face of the lord are set against you six and seven Describe why. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. he goes on to speak about idols. Look over there at chapter 7, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, and you, O son of man, thus says the Lord God, to the land of Israel. An end, an end has come upon the four corners of the land. So, the sentencing or the judgment, the reason why comes in two stages. Number one, against the mountains and number two, against the land. Now, that's just fascinating, I just wanna summarize it and move on. On the mountains, it's also referred to as the high places. And what we know about each of the kings of Israel and Judah is that they were essentially deemed good or bad based on what they did with the high places and so the first aspect of the reason for God's judgment comes in chapter 6 it's because of the idolatry that took place on the mountains at the high places where the idol temples were built initially by Solomon and then maintained or rebuilt by wicked kings thereafter so first the judgments coming because of idolatry second He says, speak against the land, an end has come upon you against the land. What happens in the land? Well, inside the land, you farm, you farm. And inside the land, you obey the covenant requirements of farming practices, six years on, one year off. And what do we know specifically about the Babylonian captivity? 70 years, we read in multiple places, specifically, firstly, from the prophet Jeremiah, 70 years of captivity, so that the land will have its Sabbath rests. One year of captivity for every one Sabbath year that was not observed. takes hundreds of years of every 7777777 seven, 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 to add up to 70 And so they'd be in captivity so that the land will have its rest. What's the picture? The picture is the apathy towards God's law. Two things. Worshipping idols, ignoring the law. That's the picture. Why the judgment? Idol worship and ignoring the law. That's the symbolism. However, what's really fascinating about this is verses eight through 10 of chapter six. Judgment's coming for these reasons, yet verse eight, I will leave some of you alive. When you have among the nations, some who escaped the sword, and when you're scattered throughout the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations, where they carried captive. Look at this, how I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed. See that? They will be loathsome in their own sight. What's that? Conviction of sin. For all the evil they have committed and all their abominations. Verse 10. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. God says his heart is broken over their sin. The same word is used in verse six: wherever you dwell, the city shall be laid waste, the high places ruined, so that your altars are will be waste and ruined. Your idols broken. Idols broken. The heart of God broken. Same word. What does this communicate, friends, about the way that sin and idolatry affect God? Does he not portray himself here as one who is crushed, who is heartbroken by the sin of his people? If you will, God will break, God will punish to the extent that his heart was broken. You see it? He will break to the extent that his heart is broken. Interestingly, Isaiah 53 says of Jesus that he was broken for our iniquities. God is heartbroken over sin and in the old covenant he responds by breaking the people breaking the places breaking the idols breaking the land in the new covenant god breaks his only son and then what happens and then they shall know that i am the lord yeah i have not said in vain that I would do this evil. What evil? To a degree, you could say the evil of putting on the shoulders of Jesus, the sin of the world. It was not done in vain. It was done so that we who like these in Israel are loathsome in our own sight for the evils that we have committed. And oh friends, isn't that one of the greatest, one of the greatest gifts that are given to us in salvation? Is the gift of a clean conscience. Yeah. Truly, in the most fascinating pictorial, metaphorical ways, here in Ezekiel, we are already seeing just the mercy of God. Isn't that fascinating? He will break to the extent that his heart is broken. And he broke our Savior. So that we might know that He is the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Your Word and these unique passages in Ezekiel. That they're so intertwined. They're they're mixed up with history and events that happened, people and places. They're mixed up with 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 metaphors and symbols and street theater and human symbolism and yet we cannot escape the mercy of god the inclination of god to forgive to chase and to break not in vain but to break so that we might call on your name thank you thank you for the character that we see portrayed in these fascinating words May we eat them, may we ingest them, may we chew on them, may we digest them, may we live off of them. We might look like you and sound like you and fulfill our duty. In Christ's name we ask that you make this happen in us and through us. Amen. Amen. Okay friends, next week we'll get into chapters 8 through 11. Uh, which is, if you want to write this on the bottom of your notes for your own benefit and preparation, the glory departs, the call, the duty, right, the verdict, the judgment, and then the glory departs. So we'll see that as we then venture into the next section and slowly catch up. All right, love you.